At Dublab, we believe in equality and action. Strong, creative people have the power to make a difference. My voice is coming to you from the Dublab studio. Make your voice heard just as clearly by voting. Broadcast your message by participating in one of the most important elections of our generation. Get started by using vote.gov and registering today. Hello and welcome to In Conversation, a DubLab podcast where each week we will bring you interviews from the DubLab radio archives. This is Katie Gately, um, and today we have the wonderful honor of uh, having Morton Sabotnik in the studio live. Thank you for coming in. Thanks. Um, you're here in L.A. right now, right, primarily for these two performances celebrating the 50-year anniversary of Silver, Silver Apples of the Moon, right? Yeah. Um, I was lucky to be at the Tuesday show. I wondered if you could speak a bit about how you went about conceiving this evening because it was from my perspective in the audience it was amazing to watch a piece that's 50 years old slash new um and then bridged with this newer piece crowds in power um they felt like they belonged together and i wondered how you were able to achieve that and plan that well um there um is not a simple answer um the there there are a number of elements to it when one is the silver apples when it was originally done, it was 1966 when I got the commission, and it came out in the fall of 1967. At that point, um, the Moog had not hit yet, and I've been working with Don Buchla on that on the Buchla for almost three and a half years, and it had just been finished like seven months before I moved to New York, and. Um, and so I had a duplicate of the original um, in my Bleecker Street studio, but there were maybe three or four units at, at, at the most in the world at that point. So it was nothing there. Um, there was no, no sequencer anywhere except the one I had, I mean, the Buchla had. <clears throat> and so when the commission came through for, um, for um, doing a record, um, I decided one side would be about pitch. I I don't know what that meant. But but for me, pitch was always, you know, even individual pitches, but also when you take... uh, 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 It almost speaks. Yeah. But if I go... It's different. Yeah. It's a different emotion. And when you start putting it together, you've got... A whole world of just pitch and feeling and but when you go tuk, 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 it's different it's completely different you can't make build emotions um there are emotions involved but it's your body that wants to move right yeah. and so it's, it's different part, i learned later it's different parts of the brain it's there they are really different but i didn't know that i just in, intuited at that time so one side was pitch the other side was rhythm um, and then, as I began working over the years, continued to work over the years, the idea seemed so absolutely right that almost everything I did 
was based on that idea. It's a very abstract idea. It's not about a thing. But things would land, like um, the, the, the other pieces that I would do would have some kind of context, um, but always always developing that context with the idea that pitch and, and, and timing are two very different things. I won't go further into that. So it, so 50 years of that. Right. Um, so when you get to the, this work, Crowds and Power, which is probably close to the culmination of, of that part of my output of, of dealing something that has um, dramatic um, um, beyond simply, and I shouldn't say simply, but beyond the pure musical experience to go to something that r refers to, to a much bigger thing out in the world. Silver Apples doesn't do that. It's, it's a, a listening experience. Um, so, but if, you, if you're taking the idea, then, then um, Crowds and Power deals with pitch and timing with pitch being expressive and so you have the whole opening which deals with just pure innocence to something else and then it grows through a combination of those to a horrifying thing where you're in the middle of crowds and power and then it comes out into a gentle the ending of that is a gentle combination of rhythm and pitch which is the idea but with a whole background of what happened so if i come out of silver apples in the moon you come out of the rhythmic section which reaches its own peak and then comes down and then you build it almost as if it belongs, because you're now going back to pitch, but with a person. And so it, um, it, you could do any number of things that way. And that's what I learned over the 50 years, is combining those two things in different ways, you have a world of output. I mean, huge number of, not huge, but a lot of pieces that I made in my life, all based on with those two basic ideas. And it, it did something essential for me, which many painters have done, um, which is to have a, a central idea that you keep working on, you get better at over the years, instead of yeah. now this, now that. And so it's one thing that, that evolved. And as I, it, I got hopefully not just older, but more mature, the music gets more mature and, and uh, older, yeah. I guess. Um, one thing that really struck me and intrigued me about the the performance with Joan LaBarbera, who's your wife and also an amazing avant-garde composer in her own right, um, was this processing of the voice in a way that was very mysterious to me. And I know you had in the past used a ghost box. Um, yeah. For that, was that on the stage? That no, no, it wasn't ghosting. That was, that was another process. I used, I did a piece for her. I did um, a bunch of pieces after the records okay. to, to bring live musicians back into the field. And um, so it, that, was, that, that was a particular kind of, of processing. No, for the crowds in power... Um, there's a part of what she does which is not processed at all. Everything coming out of the central speaker in the front um, is not processed. But I have, uh, I, 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 I had I've samples of her voice which are doing the same thing which I've processed in various kinds of ways. And it's not until the climax of the piece where um, she becomes this dark angel of power very frightening um where 
I merge them, and, and her voice eventually, in real time it's happening, is turned into like shattering glass, which is flying through the room along with her her speech. And that's the only moment when she is on, on, uh, directly being processed. I saved it for that moment. Right. But the, there is processing. Um, it, uh, you hear little bits of it when she's singing there's a kind of two octaves above there's this thing that goes and that's a a plug-in from an, an ableton it's a uh, that that's going so there but that's not really processing her voice it's it's an addition to the other sounds which are made from her voice right. in real time but it's very carefully uh done so that moment is really spectacular in, in, when it happens. Yeah, it was. I was frightened in a good way. Yeah. Um, were you bringing your own voice in? I know you had a microphone on. Uh, I'm sorry. Did you bring your own voice into that piece? I, I saw you were wearing a, a headset microphone. No, that was a um, breath controller. Oh, can you talk a bit about that for people who don't? Yeah. Well, I developed um, at the end of the '60s. With, first with Silver Apples of the Moon and then the Wild Bull. The whole idea was to be able to get my body into gesturing. I was I didn't want a black and white keyboard. It's a digital thing, you know. It's this note, then this note. I wanted I wanted to I wanted to bring the body physical thing. I was an, it, to me this was moment zero in music because we were going to have a new technology that allowed you to do whatever you want. So you didn't need to you know, blow on reeds or do something, you do whatever you want. You could get actually more primordial. You could get to the inside of the body and make it come out, not just music with pitch and so forth, a whole new kind of music. And um, after I finished the second record, I realized with, a, you know, finger control and pressure and all that stuff, I was missing a really important ingredient, which was, oh, uh, <sighs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and so I called Don Buchlin. I was living in New York. He was still in Berkeley. And I said, um, Don, I need something. And I sang to him and I said, I want to turn that into a control voltage like my fingers do. And he said, oh, I can do that. So a couple of weeks later, I had what may have been the first envelope follower. I don't know. if there. Wow. I looked up. I couldn't find a time than there was one before, but probably there was. I don't know. But it was certainly early. And I from that point on, that was around 19... 69, um, or 60, yeah, 68, 69, I began to um, develop techniques using my voice, but not in live performance. I was doing it for, I would put it on a tape, and then I would take the whole patch of the bukla for three weeks with a yeah. just that much, and turn make a thing that goes, the, the flies out, goes, you know, only, only with electronic sounds, with my envelope. Right. I got a got to be a real virtuoso at that and but when I go on the stage because uh, I, I I do performances where I well like like silver apples I was using it in silver apples okay. but um, you didn't hear my voice and um, because I I don't want my voice in there I want it's it's like it's on that envelope follower so the these breath controllers this one is made in uh, I think it's made in Sweden but it's great yeah uh, you can set you know the 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 whole trajectory of the, the of of whether it's going to be algorithmic or you, you, 
you right. can second all that stuff so you're, you're breathing it. And I was a clarinetist um, when I was young, so I can do that. And also you can bite on it, and that the amount of pressure from that, but also I use it as trigger. I can go, and then click my tongue and something will pop out. Um, wow. And you can use your head going back and forth, but I don't do that because... It hurts too much, <laughs> but it's great. And so that's what I, that I'm doing, whole articulations. Right. Uh, in real time. So um, It feels like the music is speaking to you, even on, um, I don't know if you used it on your record Touch, but that. I didn't, I didn't use it in Touch. Uh, I used it only in one place in touch. Sidewinder was the first one oh. I did. But when you listen to Until Spring, yeah. there it's completely done with that and A Sky of Cloudless Sulfur. Okay. The, the, uh, Until Spring was complete. In fact, when I do lectures, I can sing the opening of one of the sections and then play it <laughs> because I, I I have it articulated by memory and I can I can go it starts oh you don't hear my voice but you hear the electronics oh yeah and then, then I play the the opening and you hear this electronics bouncing back and forth across the room doing that and you, and you you actually can hear you don't hear my voice but you hear the exact articulation yeah uh, another thing that um I definitely noticed in the performance as well as on your records is there's something feels so meaningful about the way you put sound in space that I mean I don't know if you would call it panning but it often feels like a conversation to me between different elements like where they're coming in the room and I right. wanted to know your I'm sure you put a lot of thought into that yeah uh, th I never I don't you know, later you got this thing of um, um, immersive and all that. That's not what I'm doing. I'm, I'm using um, the movement of sound in space as just as you would use rhythm and pitch and loudness. It becomes uh, a dimension of expression. So if I go, it will, it will move. It will go. And 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 um, and it so it goes with it's a, it, I, it it emphasizes some aspect of the experience, and some of the things that happen I, I don't know if they're in this piece or not, but in some places I've set it up. There are places, but I don't know if if, if they would have been heard. A sound goes through the space, and as it moves through the space, uh, I'm attracting. Uh, I have a subwoofer, which is tracking only the lowest register and you don't hear it as it's going and it hits when all the four channels are on so so you get it only wherever it's going you only get it in the center okay. um i mean you, the subwoofer is not in the center but it's articulated in the center oh, I so see. It, it's that specific so you know so i it, i don't have to push a button to get it i it's already built in as oh. it moves through the space Yes, because the, some of the low end felt very um, specific and focused yeah. when it came in. And also, it wasn't until maybe halfway through um, the second piece, uh, Crowds and Power, that I realized, oh, we've really been living in this higher end space. Right. And so it made the low end much more powerful. I mean, yeah. I, I kind of jolted in, right, a, right. in a happy way. Um yeah, I was curious as well after seeing this um, performance a bit about Lillivan, the Berlin artist you work with live, right. because you're set up facing mostly towards a screen. And right. I thought, are you 
When you watch his images, does it affect the decisions yeah, you're making? Um, not so much in crowds and power, because that's been really worked out. Right. We, we know what's happening. You know, it's not the same every time, but it's very close. It's live performance, but like a live performance of a music you're reading, um, uh, um, there's no real improvisation in it. But Silver Apples is never the same. And, and usually when we travel, we don't do crowds and power because Joan, we can only, she has her schedule, so we will have had only three cities, I think, with crowds and power oh, wow. um, this season. And um, so they, it has to be a special occasion to do that. But but when we work together, we, usually we have a little um, monitor in front of us, so I don't have to look up at the screen. Um, but that would have gotten in the way um, last night. So um, I was looking at the screen. But in Silver Apples, for instance, my pacing, the opening, so often I use this little thing where it's actually Silver Apples, by the way. It is the sample that you're hearing going. Right. I'm processing that in real time. And then I can bring the original in, but the, the, the there's it, the, part of the pacing is based on the experience of the audience, mm. which is a combination of gestural material from sound, but also gestural that you're looking at. So he's improvising. So I go. He knows pretty much what I'm going to be doing. So I go, and then he'll move something, and then I'll catch the end of it. So it's subtle, but it's there's an interaction that's going on. Once I get into heavy, when I'm using both hands and my 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 um, breath controller, I don't look at anything. I'm just I'm just going, and I look up to make sure, you know, occasionally to make sure where he is, what he's doing. So when I get off, for instance, I had come off of that. I have a. I can keep it going forever, but I have a particular moment when I can get off of all that rhythm and it, it goes, it, it, it trails down and becomes soft. I, I try to catch a moment because I can't cue, I don't want to cue him. I catch a moment that that just works. And when he hears it, he, he sort of begins to move toward the other area too. So there's, it's like free jazz in a way, you know, you, but he's silent and I'm, I'm visual, uh, I'm blind and he's, He's deaf. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I wonder if you could speak a bit about your live setup for... It seems like you've had a computer for a while and um, you're using some controllers. And I read that you will take uh, oscillators from the Bugla and funnel them into live, Ableton Live, and then be able to kind of multiply Yeah. in there. Is that still how you... That's right. Yeah. You did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how did you come about with that setup with live? How did you choose... Well, well the... Uh, uh, Again, it's it's like the pitch and time thing. It's um, the problem with performing live. I never thought I, we didn't develop the booklet to, to do it live. It was done. I was thinking of the composer as a studio artist, and of course that seems obvious today. But there was no such thing in those days. So the idea was that you weren't going to sit at a keyboard and play in public. You were going to, or even in the studio to record, you, you were going to create the music organically from sound and, you know, uh, with patch chords and, and so forth. And then you unpatch it and everything would be 
post-production and you would end up with, with copies and you would mix them together and you'd add to it and you'd end up like sculpting or, you know, painting. So I didn't pay much attention to live performance. With I didn't think of it that way. But because Silver Apples was, I didn't expect to be, I'll tell you a funny story. I I came from San Francisco to New York. I was I was I didn't want to leave San Francisco. We were Ramon and I and the Tape Center were pretty famous in San Francisco at the time. Um, but I thought, you know, it's a little town. It's easy to get famous in a little town. <laughs> and um, so, but I, I, you know, I'll just stay here. But then I thought because I always wanted to, what I wanted really wanted to do is to develop this equipment for the future generations to see what you could do with the technology because I knew they were going to be just doing the same old thing in the future that you did in the past. So I thought, well, if I want to do that, I should really go to New York. And that's, that's a real marketplace out there. And if they like what I do and, and it, and it, it has some reason I should keep doing it, then I'll stay and do it. If not, I really know that they don't like it and nobody wants it anyway. So I'll go. And I picked a place, the middle of the country, um, uh, Kansas, uh, uh, I forgot the town now, but in Kansas, <laughs> Lawrence, Kansas, where there's a university, I get a job teaching and I'll sit in a, in a, at the end of the day, smoke a pipe and watch people walk by. I'm, I'll sit in my in a, in, a, in a rocking chair and then Silver Apples came out. And it was an immediate hit. And I was excited. But I, I said to a friend of mine, I said, you know. I, I'll never make it to Lawrence, Kansas now. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, well. <laughs> wow. Anyway, I forgot the question you asked, but... but um, um, well, I'm actually curious about that because, you know, the experience in hindsight, looking back at your... You made this record. You spent 10 months, right, working pretty much all day. 13. 13 months, working 10 hours, 12 hours yeah. a day. Uh, what... It sounds so amazing, but that was that lonely? Was it scary, or were you just so focused on the work you weren't thinking how anyone would receive it? Well, I was on Bleecker Street, so okay. you're not oh. lonely. Um, <laughs> and I mean, all the and I worked, I worked in the daytime, but mostly at night on the, because uh, I, I was um, pretty much taking care of my two kids, and and I had to see them off to school in the morning and make sure they were okay and take care of normal things during the day. I did do, do some work, but a lot, a lot at night. And people would just fall into my studio and and uh, after hours, you know, I, I don't know who was there, Grateful Dead, who knows? You know, I, I don't know, just people kept walking in. Um, and um, so I had a lot of attention and, and I ended up helping to design the electric circus. And uh, there's a lot of stuff a lot of people around. It was nice in my studio. But the one problem that, that happened, and I think I think it happens to everybody even today, that they don't probably know it's a problem, but because I was one of the first persons just sitting in my room making music and hearing it right away, um, I, I knew there was a problem, and that is I didn't know how long something should last because you get so used to something, how loud it should be, right. because you're just, you get used to it yourself. And I didn't know how to deal with that because I didn't want to write something. You know, I wanted it to be this organic experience. And my music was very loud. And we had um, a French windows that you could walk out into a little, tiny little uh, balcony outside of my studio on Bleecker Street. And um, 
and the weather would get good and you could just open the windows and one day I smoked a lot in those days and I was smoking a cigarette on the balcony and I noticed these people I'm listening to the music and there were about four or five six people standing there on the street listening and I said it all came to me I said you want to hear it come on up and they came up and I got chairs from my neighbors and and uh, I put them in the middle of the room and I said you're going to sit here and I get an extra chair for me and I said you're going to sit here and we're all going to listen to this but when we get done I want you to leave and not ask me a question or say anything <laughs> and so um, we did that wow. and my god I'm sitting by next to strangers and I heard it completely differently I knew exactly how you do this thing. You have to get someone and sit next to them, and you'll feel it the way they feel it, or you think you're feeling it the way. And it's very different. And it gave me a sense of how long things could go. You, you get the sense from them. And not that I wanted them to tell me how long, but I was hearing it like an audience member. That's what I... That's what I... It was... I never thought through the thing when I brought them up, but after I knew what was going on, what was going on is I became an audience member, and it was me I cared about. And I didn't even know why I told them not to say anything, but that's correct. I don't want to say I like that or I don't like that or I felt like, you know, green men are coming into the room or something like that. I didn't want to hear what they had to say. I wanted to find out what it feels like for me to be an audience member. And That's that was brilliant. perfect. And I use it to this day as a as a, a way to do it. Joan, my wife, comes in, but yeah. she knows not to say anything. <laughs> she just sits and listens and then goes away. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's like your own method of it should have a name, I feel like. It's, like an, it's like an empathy exercise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's incredible. And so these people were, were did they know who you were or they were just no, willing pedestrians? No, nobody had silver apples oh. on. They didn't know what they were getting into. They just came up and sat down and listened. That's really cool. I did have, I, do, I did it several times. One of the times I didn't have any chairs and they were all standing and there was a guy in the back when it was done and he's waving his hand and everybody left. And I said, I told you I don't want to talk. He said, yeah. He said, I run the, the, the cinema downstairs and we've had to stop because it's so noisy. Could you just play it? <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Um, yeah, that's incredible. Um, I wanted to ask you because I know you had this this life as a clarinetist and then and also a commissioned composer, mm-hmm. and you were quite young, right? You were in your twenties when you were actively doing that kind yeah, of. Yeah, I started actually. I played in the, my first professional sym- symphony orchestra at seventeen or eighteen. I think I was the youngest member of an orchestra at that point. Wow! So you had st- already studied composition and theory, like in high school, on your no, own. I, or? I didn't. I, I. Um, I did study, but starting in junior high school. But I didn't didn't go anywhere to study. I I took, actually, I in in junior high school I went and went and went a wisp, but I was maybe fourteen years old or something like that. I don't know what grade I was in, but I I um, decided I wanted to write music, and um, I went to a teacher in Los Angeles, you know, this, that's where we are, right? <laughs> Los Angeles is an impossible city. You know, mm-hmm. it, it just, you, we drove early in those days, I, but it was like 15 or 16. Um, I, I couldn't drive anywhere. You had to take buses and we don't have transportation. Mm-hmm. So I, I got this guy who would teach composition. It was, you know, a, a, um, 
music store, and he lived above it. Oh. And he had a piano, and um, his name was Rossi, was his last name. It just popped into my head. Yeah. I don't know what his first name was. And later I realized he was a 12, early 12-tone composer. I mean, looking back, when he showed me his music and everything, but I took harmony, you know, beginning theory and harmony. But after about, I don't know, three, four months, I just couldn't go anymore. It was just too far oh. and too hard. And one day he, he showed up at, at uh, the house we were living at with a package as a present to me after I wasn't going anymore. <laughs> it was an entire book of Eng English, I forgot, Ebenezer Prout. Okay. Uh, and, and the entire thing from harmony, counterpoint, orchestration, the whole thing, a whole book, a whole series of books. And uh, from that point on, I used those and I went through everything from 16th century counterpoint, everything until I got out of high school. And uh, so about three or four or five years of um, of, of study uh, continually in those books. Right, and that's sort of what people do in college. So didn't yeah. you place out of college? You just yeah. didn't have to go? Yeah, I, I, I won't tell you the whole story, but but I ended up, I had a scholarship at Juilliard for the clarinet oh. and a scholarship at USC, and I ended up deciding to go to USC. So the first day I had a placement exam in English, that would t tell you what you're going to do. But it was the day that the Hollywood freeway first opened. Oh. And a house got stuck under the uh, Goenga overpass. So I was 45 minutes late and, and flunked the English uh, test. And that mm. caused, that allowed me, I suppose, to be in the dumbbell English with the football players. Every day in the week I went to English. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and the next day I went, with, I got there on time, and I took the placement exam in music and passed all four years of music. Right. So I had no, no courses to take in music, and I, it was a dream. I was taking courses and all, graduate courses and this, and all. I had a wonderful time. It was great. Did you focus on ink, uh, literature, poetry, or was it just abroad? I didn't know anything. <laughs> I, I hadn't done anything but music. Mm -hmm. So um, I was taking things like I took algebra, I took a course in psychology, which was... Um, how you would decide, he was a behavioralist, Watson was his name, and and it was a graduate course in which you would decide how you would know whether things were good or bad from the absolute physical, you know, sense of n not opinions, but some kind of basic physical uh, thing, and, and he was, I won't go into the detail, but mm. it was things like that. Then when I got to, then I left there and went to Denver Symphony, uh, after the uh, first semester, and the next summer I went to Denver to play in the orchestra edition and got the job. And um, it was the Korean War, and I had to be in college to to stay out of the Army. So I, I entered um, Denver University, and I decided to major in English because I had flunked the English exam, right? Perfect. And, and then, and so I, I was, I became literate um, in poetry and everything from that. I did a huge amount of reading 
plays, and we had one wonderful, one, maybe the best course I ever had in my life was was Elizabethan drama without Shakespeare. So I was reading Thomas Kidd and, you know, everybody else who was writing plays during that period. And, of course, I read all of Shakespeare as well, but but uh, I'm one of the few people who I know who's, who's, who's gotten all three versions of Hamlet and, yeah. and, you know, all of that stuff. It was great. I became literate through that. Wow. Did you ever consider writing or was it more that it got absorbed? I did. I, I, because the head of the program was a um, um, man, his last name was Swallow, Alan Swallow, who was a fairly well-known poet at the time. And he had the Swallow Press, which was a, you know, the poetry press, right. press, and that was, that was Alan Swallow. And so... Um, there was a lot of poetry, and I I started writing poetry just in class, and he took one of the poems I did and and um, wrote, and was going to put it in a um, oh uh, um, he he and the I was taking a psychology course also, and the two of them uh, took a they took a fascination to me, and um, they decided they would publish my poem in the in the psychology because it had something to do with, I don't remember the poem, <laughs> but um, I didn't let them do it because <laughs> I was such a purist. I thought, well, I'm not going to become a poet. I don't think you should publish my poetry. It'll give people the wrong idea about what's going on. Yeah. And not only that, but I had met, you know who uh, um, Stan Brackage was, right? Yeah. Well, I met Stan at that point. We were just out of high school and wow. together. And, uh, and Stan was... He had opinions on absolutely everything. He said, this is okay. He said, but it's not really good poetry. I, he said, it's not really good. So I agreed with him. It wasn't really, really good. So I said, no, you can't publish it. But I did I did play with that. Right. And at what point did you go back to San Francisco? Didn't you study also at Mills after Denver? Yeah, well, I finally got drafted. Oh, Okay. And um, because I, I wasn't matriculating, I was still a freshman after two and a half years. <laughs> and um, so I got drafted at the end of the war. And um, and they and I was going to be in a band. And um, so the band they put me in was the Sixth Army Band in San Francisco. And that's how I got to San Francisco. And then I... It was like an eight-hour-a-day job, and um, the evenings I was free, and I performed new music in the city, and I was writing music, and I had performances. So I was part of the scene while I was still in the Army. And then uh, I was offered the fellowship at Mills College, and but I had to go back to Denver for two quarters to get my bachelor's degree. And there I was reading, you know, seven novels a week because I had to now matriculate in two quarters. So I was just uh, I, I was doing that, working at the Piggly Wiggly Market <laughs> in the afternoon and playing the King and I at night uh, oh to make a living. And, wow. uh, and I made it back to San Francisco and the rest is history now. Right, right. So you were in San Francisco right around 1960, which is right when... No, I... I, I started in, in 1954. 54, okay. Yeah, and, but I was there you know, at the the heyday of everything. Okay, and it was around the heyday of, like, the record being this actual new concept yeah. that you... Is it true you put an ad in the newspaper? To Is that how you first encountered I'm Don I'm sorry? Bu Did you encounter Don Bukla through, a like, an advertisement in the yeah, newspaper? Yeah, we put an ad. Uh, we, it was, you know, we were, it was around 1960 one or two by then 
um, Ramon Sender and I uh, had started the tape center. We, we didn't start the tapes. We we were making a studio together, mm-hmm. and uh, we thought we could get some money from someone that I knew from the San Francisco. I played with the San Francisco Symphony and uh, the Opera Orchestra, and and, um, and this woman had just bought. She gave money. She was the heiress of um, one of the big banks. Um, the one with horses um, mm. in the front was a, I can't remember the name of the bank, but but um, uh, it's still going. And she she gave money to the symphony and had just bought a string quartet for the, I think it was a Budapest string quartet, something like that. So Ramon and I went to her and said, uh, you know, well, I called her on the phone. I said, you think you, you told her what we were doing? You could give us some money. And she said, yeah, but you'll have to be a... Nonprofit corporation, and that's mm-hmm. how we became the tape center. We paid a hundred dollars and became a nonprofit corp. We needed a name, and so we made it the San Francisco Tape Music Center. And um, then she sent a check for twenty five dollars. What? <laughs> and that was nothing as well back then. No, it was nothing. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so then it was a was it a Rockefeller grant or yeah, that was much later. But okay. but the, with the Buchla, uh I, I had this idea for two years already to mm-hmm. of this thing that would be in the studio. I and I didn't know anything about electronics, so we couldn't get it going. Put an ad in the paper, and it was just the beginning. Nineteen sixty one two was the beginning of mm-hmm. the whole drug thing. The Beatles didn't come until sixty four. The actual movement didn't psychedelic movement didn't start until early 65 so this was ahead of that but it was already beginning you know so i the people would come we had a couple of people who came were just they were just wiped out on drugs you know yeah. it was like it was crazy and um then comes this i think he was completely sober <laughs> that would turn out to be don buchla and he he always said he didn't come because of the ad in the paper. He came because he wanted to borrow a tape recorder. But Don, when we would do interviews together, and then I would let him talk first about the beginnings of everything, and then I would talk. And they say, well, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I said, this is going to be a little bit like the movie Rashomon. It's going to be a very different story. Right. <laughs> so I never really knew whether he came from the ad or he came to borrow a tape recorder, or maybe both, but that, right. that's how we went. And did you feel pretty quickly there was a kindred connection between you? I know engineers can be very artistic. I don't know if you felt that. Yeah, yeah. He he was he, he was not good with communication, oh. um, and um, but we had an idea. Ramon and I uh, came up with a, uh, an idea about what we were looking for, and it was very specific, and it had to do with a a wheel on battery which had holes in it going over a photocell the speed would give you the pitch and the shape would give you the waveform right. um, got this from Helmholtz reading that about it and we came up with this idea and so Don said uh, I can do that and he came back the next day with a board I have a picture of it in my book um, for the MIT press but it, it came back with a, a board with a wheel and the whole thing and it worked Wow. Um, it was great. It made noise. It was awful. But, you know, and you could not have made music with it without a lot of stuff. He said, but this is the wrong way to go. And he, he described voltage control and um, um, integrated circuits and the transistor. I knew about the transistor. I didn't know what it was. Right. Uh, and and um, so we went. And then Ramon backed off, and it was just um, Don and I, and we worked for better part of a year on paper. 
while you were working on it, were you sort of like hearing potential compositions or was it no. more like, I need a functional? No, uh, I, I wanted, it was process. It was mm. separating sound. Uh, sound was, I, I, I used the, the, the studio artist as metaphor and painting as the metaphor. So it was, um, the palette was the sound. Um, the canvas was with the loudspeakers or, you know, the, the amplification system in the room. And, um, and the control voltage was the brush in the hand. So, um, and, and from that, Don separated audio from control voltage. So the cables are completely different and, and it was a great, I won't go into that, but it was a very important ingredient to this whole thing. And that allowed me to think through the metaphor itself freed me from the keyboard and all the standard thinking and I was able to to uh, come up with ways and and I would tell him and the, the sequencer for instance was not thought of as a loop hmm. the sequencer was a sequence of events with voltages coming out so you wouldn't have to cut tape right. so one of the voltages would would tell you the time between one event and the next and the other voltage would be, say, the amplitude, and the other one would be the pitch. And you could duplicate this um, with two sequencers and have a longer sequence. One sequencer that's going 7, one going 11. If you use, you know, um, prime numbers, you can get a long sequence with these, with these knobs uh, of voltages um, uh, adding to each other. So... Um, uh, it was great. I never and and it could repeat, of course, mm-hmm. but um, but that wasn't it wasn't there was no such thing as a well there might have been I don't know but no as far as I as most people know there wasn't no there were no drum machines or anything like that so mm-hmm. um, I was thinking of it as a long sequence of events and it wasn't until I got into my studio on Bleecker Street when I was working on the second side of Silver Apples that I set up a, a kind of um, uh, underbelly, um, underneath that would go, and then other sequencer would be going long, and that was the repeated sequence. But I could come in and change knobs, so I had to get rid of one, you know. So I could come in, and it was, and I worked, you know, all these hours and days in the same patch. I'd come into the studio. And I realized I never got tired of an uh, that absolute beat going. In fact, instead of being tired, it energized me wow. physically, and and that's that's when the whole notion of um, it w- I had the notion of pitch and time, but it wasn't until I got that sequencer going with that repetition of an actual metric beat that um, that I just it, it really changed my thinking, my whole my whole body changed at that point right because you had had you ever played drums or anything no i played yeah. the clarinet clarinet and it, not really percussive and i didn't like dancing yeah. um i don't like swaying to music right. uh, i didn't like tapping my feet to the music um and i even then i didn't sway to it i just felt it mm. and and it was energizing and um and then the the growth of the all the rhythms that came through it. I had new, if you heard it, uh, I had new rhythms. I was playing against it um, in, in, in real time yeah. um, with the original thing going in. So I could actually manipulate and, and I had a loop of it um, going um, 
with with random accents, and so um, it, but they were synced, but but so with two pots, so I, I get the random one bringing the whole thing down, and I could play new things over, and it became the the original silver apples became a background for me performing live. Oh, wow, that's what you were hearing, right? And um, and and I had a knob where I could control. Um, the speed of the movement of every note around the space. So, um, uh, so that's what you were getting at that point. So it's pretty live at, yeah. at, at that at that point. But um, wow, yeah. So the, the machine really came to life, and it it uh, Marshall McLuhan has a statement: first, first you make the machine, then the machine makes you. Yeah. And um, as much as I actually made the machine with all the thinking I did um, the machine but answer the other question you had I just remembered is was I thinking music when in those years what I did is I took scores I wanted to make a new music mm -hmm. I didn't know what that was going to be so I needed enough raw materials but one thing I did know is that one of the things that ought to be able to do even if it's hard is to is to do a complicated piece of music so I took the first page of a of a a small score of um, um, Boulez, very complicated, one of the, the Marteau, mm. and really complicated with wild rhythms. And I'm with, without hearing it, just knowing process of what knob would do what and what, how you would do it. I, w I actually felt comfortable that I could maybe in three months or two months or at some point I was capable with the machine we were making to, to create a piece like Bula's not that I ever did it, right. but I was always sure. I was always positive, making sure that it was capable of the most complex music we had gotten. Because what you're not going to in evolution, you don't want to get rid of everything that's possible. You want to have a the potential of taking that to a new place. So I wanted to make sure I wasn't limiting and just a, a parent, parenthetical thing. The keyboard that did come went in the opposite direction. You could only play one note. Mm. It wasn't polyphonic. And if you wanted to make any changes other than just when it played and what pitch it was, you had to add the the, the wheel. And now you couldn't even play the one note with, you know, playing with two hands on it. Now you were stuck with one hand behind your back and you're playing this yeah. thing. It was completely backwards to where you, where you wanted to go at that right. point. Um, yeah, I mean, when I was at your show on Tuesday, I felt like... Um, the sounds don't sound like a classical concert, but the structure really does in terms of where we're going and how things build. And then there's really there's these strong, clear climaxes and, and releases in, in both the pieces. And I wondered, do you notate this this work? Um, I sketched. Okay. I don't I don't notate, but I have sketchbooks full of drawings, of, you know, shapes and and um and notes and um uh library of congress has them now but but they're, they're whole books i was very careful at you know um blank page books for books so i could keep them um over a period of time i don't have them for silver apples or the wild bull because i didn't i didn't do anything permanently because i didn't think anyone cared after that i have i kept track because it was clear that they were going to be meaningful to people so they're they're available right and in that time period where you were developing and then um, I'm sure you were thinking of ideas on the Bukla, 
what exactly was the space between when um, it was really created as an instrument and then you were um, commissioned by Nunsuch to actually create a proper Well, it was very quick on. I I was in my studio, um, 1966, um, starting in the summer of 1966. Yeah. No, no. I don't know. I can't tell you for sure. But it was 1966 because there had to be 13 months before the, um, when it also, I could tell you, let's see, September, it came out September 67. So September, it was the summer of 66. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, um, so I was there and I was working, um, uh, with a book club, really, I, I had used it in San Francisco, but I, did, I hadn't done anything with it. And I was really working for the first time in New York with it. Um, uh, seriously, I was probably the only one, you know, at that point. And, um, uh, developing and giving lectures on, on, um, my ideas about this becoming the record, becoming the thing, um, and um, the, the 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 medium of the future for right. electronic music, and um, and so people from rock bands used to come in at late at night, and this one guy came in. We're going to be interviewing him actually this week, um, but um, he came in. And um, gave me my lecture, and I thought he was making fun of me. So I, he said, "We're going to give you five hundred dollars to be the first to do this thing." And I said, "I mean, it was, it was like something you don't believe. It's like, yeah, you're going to do that." I said, "I said, no, just just leave me alone. Just go." Mm. And he left. And the next day, um, I found out what what none such record right. was, <laughs> and, and I thought, oh boy, I've really done it now, <laughs> and he came back that night, and oh. he came in the next night, and um, he came in, and um, as I remember, we'll find out when we interview him, but it was, I, as I remember, he said, don't, you know, don't tell me to go, just listen me out, we've met all day, and we've decided to give you a thousand dollars. So, so I said I'll take it, and that was that was the beginning. So it came right off the bat. It was wow. you know really close on maybe, maybe four months after I got into. Um, and so it was all created after that point. You weren't sort of. I wasn't working well. Yes, no. That I see. Yeah, no. I was working on ideas. Mm. Um, I, I did. It didn't start from scratch at that point. I worked. I was already working. Learning the bukla, I, I, I have a process where I have a play period. I've always had this, mm-hmm. where you, you, you force yourself not to think. You just have a good time. And then you, at some, and you just invent. And um, uh, I even did this when I was writing um, music on paper, this, this, in order not to get fixed on something, to give yourself... I just knew that you needed time to relax. That was my vacation. Right. I never took vacations. That was my vacation period, playing with music. And then um, then you begin to articulate. You become the... That's the performer in you. And then the composer in you stops and takes information from the composer and so, the performer and says, you know, if you've shaped it this way, maybe... You know, see, let's see what happens. And then so you go back and forth between those until the idea for the piece begins to go. So, as I said earlier, um, I came up with this general idea of pitch and time 
um, early on in that process. And um, then it was pretty easy from from that to take it to the next step of putting them together in a particular way. So they all have different shapes, but they all are based on the same two um, thinking. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but, but... and so the reception from, I mean, when you handed it off to the record label, did you, were you sticking to that process where you're not really asking people for feedback? You sort of arrived at the point of it Oh, being, no. If I took feedback, I would never take feedback from it. It just interrupts, no. right? Yeah. They took what they got. That, well, that they, was it. they loved it, right? I imagine. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. They, they put it out. And how soon after were you working on It's the Wild Bull came out, right? Uh, 60, 68, the Wild Bull. As soon as... Soon as um, I started the Wild Bull before Silver Apples came out because I had to turn it in right. to them, and then it was another couple of months before it came out, oh. and um, and so and I immediately started on the next one because um, they didn't give me a, a another commission mm-hmm. right away. <clears throat> it was after Silver Apples, so I was working on a, a new idea. There the pitch side I got the Sumerian poem mm. the pitch side was going to be <clears throat> the the female r- response to the death of the man I, I don't know if you know the poem but it's a it's a warrior mm. that goes off and and it's it's um the poem is by the wife about her husband the warrior who goes off and gets killed but the second side is the warrior uh, and how he feels going to war. And it's a rhythmic side. It goes, oh, you've heard the right yeah, music. Yeah, yeah. That second side is him. The first side, oh, all those right. things. That's her wailing all over it. So pitch then became wailing mourn, and the, and the, and the male side was the rhythmic uh, side. So, um, wow. and you could do them in either order. You wouldn't matter which side you played first. Right, right. Oh, that's fascinating. I love that it feels like a conversation listening to it, like this long form call and response. Yeah, because you have part of her on the second side too. She's still um, crying over still, the, over his, yeah. uh, uh, his thing. It, was, it oh, wasn't wow. perfect. In that. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Um, I wanted to just jump to now because we have a few minutes left and I, I wanted to talk about Really, what are you interested in right now? And I know you've been doing these performances, but is there something coming up or that you're currently wrestling with that you want to discuss? Well, um, generally, things don't come up because I don't have time. <laughs> um, I mean, when I'm ready to do something, I tell someone. I always have. Mm-hmm. I'm ready to do something, except for the silver apples. That, that, that was a godsend because that triggered everything. And then I, I was free to be able to say, I don't want to do that, but this is what I want to do, and call someone and then get funding to be able to. There's never much, but, you know, be able to keep going. So it's the same now as it was then. What I, I Now, because I'll be 85 in a couple of months, I I know that people die, you know, and, and um, <laughs> really, <laughs> no. But I mean, not by necessarily accident. You know, you die, you don't live forever. And I know that I know I know finitely. It's an interesting time of life. Mm-hmm. I know within a few years of when I'm absolutely will die. So at that point, you say, well, um, I've always from the time I was almost. Nine, ten years old. I, the whole point of li- living was to do the best you can with what you have and to share it with other people. That's what we do. So um, 
what what do I have left to do? Well, the th- ideas about pitch and time, for instance, I've never articulated them in a complete way. The the, the thing I've done research and I give lectures and um, but I'd like to write a book. I've done my memoirs. That's going off in MIT. So all the stories are going to be there. Wonderful. Whoever reads them, it doesn't matter to me. It's just that I've done it, so it's going to be available for for people. And so the ideas are the same. I'm going to... uh, The book is going to be not a through the my memoirs are like a novel it's, it just takes me through life but the, the this is going to be my thoughts and i'd like to have enough time while i'm still coherent mm. to be able to write that book it probably will take it two to three years so i want to make sure i leave that time so mm. if i start when i'm 85 um i'll be 88 between 88 to 90 years old on that does start to be a little bit on the old side. Right. So I want to make sure that I've got that. Um, and, and that's my next big project. Oh, that's exciting. So that's a that's a separate book um, than this MIT. Yeah, yeah, it'll be. I don't I won't even offer it to a publisher at first. Know. I'm just going to write it. And also, um, I'm also have a awful lot of work. I've been stuck with this mantra of you have to share. So people want some of my old things and I, it's mm-hmm. really hard to get put back together. Mm-hmm. And the Library of Congress is, you know, putting them in some kind of order. But it's taking a lot of time. Um and I don't have enough money for an assistant, a full time assistant. So um I'm having to do a lot of it on my own and, oh. you know, get students to help and things like that. So that actually eats up a lot of time. Um, but it's you know it's great that yeah. people want it and 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 if they do then want to make so I have a my publisher is helping and we're we're putting I have someone coming next week who's going to be taking some of the scores and and figuring out what to do with them and so forth. Um, that's wonderful. And you're also in a documentary right now. Yeah, right? and that's then we're so doing exciting. the documentary. Yeah. So all, all that's very important to me, you know, and it's been good that I can do that and mm. and I'm trying. I do a lot of research. Uh, on my own life to make sure I'm not telling something that isn't right. true, which is easy to do. Yeah, for sure. Um, and any perf- other performances such as these two, or is this period, this 50th anniversary celebration? I'm sorry, that you say it again? Is this 50th anniversary celebration performance period ending now, or are you doing it, more? It ends, uh, well, I go to, um, when I get back, I go in a couple of weeks, I go to um, Turkey, oh. and then um, Berlin, and then Paris. The following month, I go to um, Hamburg and uh, Barcelona and um, and Northeast Coast. So I'm I'm traveling a lot to Norway and somewhere in that period. And um, and I'm pretty much booked through September. That is the September to September was my year, and that that will end that. But I'm also working with Lillivan and Crowds and Power, and not part of the fiftieth. I Right. I just, I'm an opportunist. I take (laughs) what I need to put together and put them, but I'm not going to do that. That was a tour, and we had an agent, so we got just huge number of concerts. um, And, uh, I mean, huge for me. And um, um, then it's going to be sort of one a month somewhere. And um, uh, I'll keep going as long as I feel comfortable doing it. But but I really want to start getting the book going, too. Awesome. Well, I cannot thank you enough for coming in today. And I think was this was wonderful. Thank surreal you. Surreal honor to talk to you. So yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
In Conversation was produced by DubLab, a nonprofit radio station broadcasting live from Los Angeles since 1999. Sound editing and theme song by Matea Bame. For more programming, visit dublab.com. And thank you for listening.